You have redeemed us, O Lord, in your blood. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Uh, dear friends, last month was uh, the, the month we've, uh, of the Sacred Heart, and this month, the month of the Precious Blood. And you might ask yourself, well, what's, why, why, why would we go from focusing one month on the Precious Blood, uh, on the Sacred Heart, and then this month on the Precious Blood, are we not just emphasizing uh, two aspects of the same thing? Um, the answer is not necessarily. The, the Sacred Heart refers primarily to the mercy uh, of our Lord, the, the compassion, the Good Shepherd. But the Precious Blood, this doctrine was, uh, is directly linked with the question of atonement, the price that our Lord would pay for our redemption. And this this topic of the precious blood, or the, should I say more precisely, the doctrine of atonement, uh, is something that the church fathers expound upon in great length, in great detail. And I know I'm not going to go into that because as Catholics year in and year out, especially during the, the time uh, of Lent, and uh, we, we focus quite a lot on explaining the reality of our Lord as Redeemer. But what I want to look at with you a little bit today is the notion of the precious blood and its relation to this whole question of atonement, because this is quite profoundly at the very heart and center of our faith and our spiritual life. In the uh, prayer of Matins for the Feast of the Precious Blood, we read these very lovely and poetic words. He who once in righteous vengeance whelmed the world beneath the flood, once again in mercy cleansed it with the stream of his own blood. Coming from his throne on high, on the painful cross to die. When before the judge we tremble, conscious of his broken laws, may this blood in that dread hour cry aloud and plead our cause. Bid our guilty terrors cease, be our pardon and our peace. His blood then is our pardon and our peace. So much so, says Father Faber, that the precious blood then is the greatest, the most undeniable of our necessities. There is no true life without it. Why does Father Faber, this very enlightened and very informed priest, make this, this statement? It sounds a bit audacious. And that's, he makes this statement because St. Paul himself in his letter to the Hebrews explains in his, in his uh, letter, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. St. Paul's writing to the Hebrews, to his own people, and he makes this statement. Why, why does St. Paul say, without the, remission, the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins? He's making a statement that all the Jews knew, understood, and accepted. They already believed this. And you, you see this throughout the whole of the Old Testament. All these... Uh, Ceremonies of the shedding of blood of animals. What's the point of all that? The Jews understood without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But what's the link between shedding of blood and the forgiveness of sins? That the Jews, even in the Old Testament, understood. Well, the Jews understood that when Adam and Eve fell, uh, God would have to clothe them. And what does he do to clothe them? He sheds the blood of an animal. And he, from the skins of that animal, he makes for them clothes to wear. And this covers, their, obviously, their, their external um, uh, nakedness. But it's a sign of the reality that our Lord himself will cover 
our internal nakedness, our sins. And we see then throughout the, the whole of the, the Old Testament this reality taking place. And St. Paul explains it at length in his letter to the Hebrews. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but St. Paul reminds the Hebrews that whereupon neither was the first covenant that God made with his people indeed dedicated without blood. For when every uh, uh, commandment of the law had been read by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. The tabernacle also and all the vessels of the ministry in like manner he sprinkled with blood and almost all the things according to the law are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. So you see this uh, spiritually taking place in the sung mass the priest sprinkles the people with uh, holy water before the mass and that comes from the Old Testament where the people literally were sprinkled uh, with blood. Imagine coming to mass and the priest sprinkling your clothes, your Sunday clothes with blood. Why were they doing that? God was preparing them so as St. Paul points out in his letter to the Hebrews, the redemption through the blood of our Lord. Because as St. Paul points out, the blood of our animals is able to cleanse you of absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. And this is a very profound point for us to understand. That the Jews today, they have no sacrifice. And then without the sacrifice, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no blood atonement. They have no high priest, they have no pope, they have no priesthood, they have no sacrifice, and they have no temple for which to make the sacrifice. A sign that our Lord replaced all that in his very own person. Uh, and St. Paul points out then that our Lord, by his passion, cleanses our conscience unto God. But can we not say that we are merely saved, and this is a very good point, and every religion can make this objection, that we are merely saved by simply telling God we are sorry. It's a fair objection, fair point. And yet, now in the Old Testament, whenever God calls the people to uh, repentance, He also calls them to sacrifice, to shedding of blood and atonement. They are linked together. And why is that, that they are linked together? Because my prayers and your prayers... And all of our alms, deeds and sacrifices are not worth anything. It's only God who has any real value before God. And that's why our Lord's blood, the shedding of his blood and his atonement is the only reality of value for us to be saved. St. Paul points out this uh, in his letter to the Hebrews, explaining that, again, as I said, the blood of the animals doesn't do us any good. And the Jews of old, that is, the Jews in the early church and the Jews today, they make an objection to this point. And this point is there already in the Old Testament. Could we not say then that the righteous of the old law, uh, uh, Isaac, Abraham, Moses, uh, and their sacrifices like that of the, the Maccabean martyrs, could we not say that their sacrifice was enough to obtain for us uh, mercy, pardon, and salvation through their righteous deeds? And in fact, if we look at the, the book of the Maccabees, we see this concept. We see in the second book of Maccabees, and the, the, the last of the Maccabean brothers, 
as he's being put to death, he, he rightly says that I, like my brethren, offer up my life and my body for the laws of our fathers, calling upon God to be speedily merciful to our nation. In me and in my brethren, the wrath of Almighty God, which has justly been brought upon all of our nation, shall cease. It's very interesting, that statement, because already you see there a sense of uh, certain people or their good deeds being not only a blessing to themselves, but a blessing to the whole nation. And in fact, in the apocryphal literature of uh, the Maccabean uh, story, we read, and for for Maccabees, we read that, which is not part of uh, the, um, the, the inspired word of God, we read, that the, the commentator on this states that their death obtained for us victory over our enemies, the chastisement of the tyrants, and the purification of the people. By their substitution, they were burdened with the sins of the nation, by the merits of their blood, and of their atoning death, God's providence saved Irving Israel. And that's a fair objection. The Jews understood this point in the Old Testament, very clearly. But the problem is that all of our sins, even one sin, when we sin, we commit an act against the God who is infinite. So how can somebody who is finite, limited, repair an act which is actually essentially infinite? The problem is he cannot. And this is why all the saints of the Old Testament put together, in their good deeds and their own holiness cannot remit for us a single sin any more, really, than the blood of an animal can remit for us a sin. And the, church, uh, the early church fathers go into detail into explaining to, to us not only the question of our Lord as Redeemer, but also in answering this point. St. John Chrysostom, who I spoke to at length, la- quoted last week, the uh, last sermon I gave you, again, he answers this point very beautifully and says, Why did Christ die? He died because on the one hand we were all sinners and on the other hand only the sinless can die for sinners. I can't pay the debt of my neighbour if I myself am in debt. I can't pay a a millionaire's uh, uh, ransom if I myself have no money, if I myself am cashless. And here again, St. Cyril of Alexandria makes the same point. He says, how could one die for all and be the equivalent of all where his sufferings those of a common man. But if it was God who suffered in human nature, then we can say, and say rightly, that the death of this one is equivalent to the life of all. For it will then not be the death of a man like us, but of God incarnate. And again, another church father, St. Proculus, explains, Our Saviour was therefore neither a simple man, nor God only, but God made man. For he came to save us, and for this he came to die. Now, how can these things come together? How can that be? God suffering, God dying. A common man cannot save us. God, as such, cannot suffer. God cannot suffer. And a common man can't save us. Then God himself became man. What he was, save us, saves us. What was he? God. But what he became suffers. What did he become? Man. He suffers as man, 
but saves us as God. And this is a very profound point. This is the dilemma that has plagued all of mankind and plagues all of mankind to the present day. There's a very famous story in the life of uh, Buddha where one of the Brahmin priests dressed in white comes to him and says to him, how do I save myself from the consequence of my sins? And you read in, in the uh, religious encyclopedia, Buddha uh, responds by saying to him, even if you followed the 227 precepts and gave alms according to that and did good works for nine trillion years, you will have not gained a single ounce of merit, the, the extent of the uh, grain of sand. In other words, even Buddha understood that even nine trillion years of lives of good works could not wash away one ounce of sin. All that these other religions can do is point you to the one who can. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I know we often say the sins of the world, but originally St. John the Baptist said the one who takes away the sin of the world. What is that sin that brought chaos and anarchy into the world? That is original sin. And original sin is something that all the great minds prior to the coming of Christ never understood. We see this, this goodness in the world and yet there's, there's sickness, disease, illness, suffering. Why all this evil in, in, in a world which is also very beautiful and good? Original sin. And our Lord came to take away the ultimate consequence of that which is damnation. And his blood restores us to peace and tranquility in this world. Even, even Muhammad, prophet of Islam, what does he say about himself? He's a sinner. What does he say about Christ? He's sinless. Islam can only point us to Christ. They can only all point us to one reality, the one who can take away our sin. Judaism, all it can do is point us to the Messiah, the Redeemer. And that's why after the resurrection, our Lord... He rebukes the disciples on the road to Amos. He says to them, Did you not know that it's written in the law from Moses and the prophets that it behooved the Son of Man to come, to die, to suffer, and to rise again? You should have known. It's written there, and, and it's there in all of your ceremonies, your practices, your ideas, that the Messiah is going to come and save his people through his death. This is why you have all these ceremonies. This is why you have all these sacrifices. Otherwise, dear friends, if, if they didn't point to the blood of our Lord, then some way we would say God is a bit somewhat neurotic or sadistic. What's the point of killing an innocent animal uh, and it does nothing? What's it going to do? What's the blood of an animal going to do for anything? Nothing. But it has value and merit in as much as it points to the, that which is of infinite value, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all to prepare them for a great, the great and ultimate reality of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why we read that when the prophet Daniel is praying to God and the people are in exile and he's saddened uh, for the reality of his people but also understood that the people were in exile as a result of their sins. God responds to him and we read, in the book of Daniel, that he proclaims the reality of the Messiah to come. And he says, the Christ, that is the anointed one, shall be slain. And the people that shall deny him shall not be his. And the people with their leader that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be waste. And after the end of the war, the appointed desolation. He's talking about what? 
they're going to reject the Messiah. But the consequence is the destruction of the temple. And the consequence of that has remained to this day. In other words, all of the Old Testament came to an end. And that's why on the cross, our Lord says, it is consummated, it's finished. And the temple, the temple uh, veil is rent from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top. Why from top to bottom? In other words, God is, is saying the old law has come to an end and has been fulfilled. Our Lord said, I did not come to destroy the law. No, I came to fulfill the law. That's something the Protestants don't understand. Uh, because our Lord's blood flows forth from what? The life of the church. And in practice, that's made real for us in the sacraments. The source of all the sacraments, the grace that flows from them, is in uh, our Lord's precious blood. And all these things were, were typified, were pointed out in the old law. The priesthood, uh, forgiveness of sins, all these things were there. And you know, if we think about it, this, as I said, even, even Buddha and any of those who are honest can understand that we can do nothing of ourselves to rid ourselves of our, of our sins. It's our Lord Jesus Christ alone who can do that. And, and one day, one of our parishioners, one of our, in one of our chapels I was at, I could see after Mass he was somewhat uh, troubled. He was uh, troubled by uh, something. So I said to him, look, uh, give me a few minutes and uh, go home and after that I'll come by and, and see what's troubling you. He said to me, Father, you know what troubles me in my old age is, is the reality to believe that all my sins are easily washed away just by going to confession. That's hard for me to believe. I said to him, you know, there's a, a, a similar story like what you're saying in the Old Testament. There was a general whose name escapes me now. He was suffering from uh, the disease of leprosy. And he, he was told, if you go to the prophet Elysius, he'll be able to heal you. He's a holy man. So he goes to the prophet and he takes one of his servants with him. And the prophet says to him, simply go and wash yourself in that river there, the Jordan, seven times and you'll be cleansed. And upon hearing this, the general is enraged. Is, is this man making a fool of me, insulting me? Um, is he playing a, a joke, a trick? Go and wash yourself. Do you think that I'm a, a dirty man? I don't clean myself? What is this? And the servant, hearing this man was enraged, said to him, look, if he asked you to do, climb the highest mountain, to, to do some difficult task, to pay a large amount of money, you would do it, right? And he said, yeah, I'd do that. He said, but he's asking you now, go and wash yourself in the, in the river. Have you got something to lose? He said, no. So he goes and he washes himself and he's cleansed. It's a bit like that with us and our Lord. If our Lord asked us to go on pilgrimage to, to the Holy Land uh, to get your sins forgiven, well, if I want to go to heaven, all I have to do that. Well, our Lord says, well, no, uh, no, you just go to confession and say sorry to God through the blood of our Lord. Oh, that's all we have to do? Yeah, it's that simple. Uh, to have our sins taken away. But to live up to that, how do we live up to that? And this is the point that St. Paul makes to the Hebrews. The letter of the law is not enough to save us. The Ten Commandments can save you from nothing. All they can do is tell you what not to do. But the grace to not do it is another thing altogether. And it's, that's why the ceremonies in the old law were necessary. Because they pointed, not only pointed to the blood of the Lamb, but they gave you the grace of the blood of the Lamb in anticipation. They gave you a grace from Calvary uh, in the future to be able to live up to the law. But the law itself is able to make uh, nothing with you. 
to provide you for nothing. Uh, uh, it's a dead letter. To live up to the law requires God's grace. Because without God's grace, we are not able uh, to live up to the letter of the law. And that's why we can say, dear friends, that all the saints of the Old Testament put together uh, don't look to them for any great, great holiness like we see in the, in the saints of the New Testament times. Why? Because the grace that's been poured out to us uh, in the New Testament times doesn't compare with say, the, the grace they received under the old law. It was only feeble. Uh, Our Lady, of course, uh, being the bridge between the two. But if we can even look at this question of Our Lady and the precious blood, just to give us a little understanding here, in the patristic understanding, the precious blood of Our Lord came from the pure and sinless blood of Our Lady. What what do we mean by that? Yeah, St. John Hughes explains that one of the second prerogatives of the corporal heart of Mary is that it produced the, the virginal blood with which the sacred body of God was formed in the chest womb of his, precious, uh, uh, of his blessed mother. Now, we know that uh, uh, our hearts don't form blood. It's the bones that form the blood. It's the heart that pumps the blood. But what St. John Hughes is getting at is what was understood by the early church fathers. And here, I'm just going to quote... St. John uh, de Messine, who has a great devotion to Our Lady, who says that the Son of God, from the Virgin's purest blood, formed himself flesh animated with a rational soul. In other words, God took the blood of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and from that he formed himself uh, human flesh, and from that incarnated himself in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In other words, the, the sacred heart of our Lord comes from the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady. They are, they are united but, even on that note, let us say that even the, the greatness, and you know how we love Our Lady and we, we elevate her, uh, not that we elevate her, that God elevated her, but even Our Lady, with all of her holiness, could not redeem us. Why? Because like us, she's finite, she's a creature. It's only our Lord who is God, as God, uh, could die for, could, could uh, redeem us. Because he's infinite. We needed a man. Why? Because a man, a man, Adam and Eve, primarily Adam, committed the sin. But we needed someone who was infinite. And the only one who is infinite is God. And that's why God says to the prophet Isaiah, I myself will come and I, I will save my people. And it's our Lord who comes to save us. And it's, as I say, his, his precious blood, which is the, what we would say, the, the font, the fountain of all the gracious, uh, the graces that we receive. In other words, the Catholic Church explains that the Jews in the Old Testament, and you can put a cross if you want in the middle, uh, received grace from the blood of Christ to come. We receive grace from the blood of Christ who has come, but all points to the blood of Christ. And it's that blood which is our, our atonement, our peace, our grace. And if we apply this in... Uh, Reality now, let's take a, a practical uh, uh, reflection. Uh, uh, we say in the litany of the precious blood, uh, he is, his blood is the strength of confessors, the hope of those in peril, the relief of the burden, to, the consolation of the dying, and the pledge of eternal life. It's our pledge here below. But you know, if we don't accept the blood of our Lord, we don't accept that remission of sins through his blood, 
What ends up happening in practice? Well, we've seen that very clearly, in the last, particularly in the last 100 or 200 years. We end up shedding each other's blood. And countless wars, millions of people died in those wars. Millions. If we add up the last 100 years alone, how many people died unnecessarily? And I emphasise the word unnecessarily. Killing each other. How many murders and injustices take place on a daily, blood, daily level? How much blood is shed each day? Because we reject the blood of our Lord. His blood is our peace. Not only in heaven, but here below. It's, it brings peace. That's why Pius XI will say the peace of Christ in the reign of Christ. But we will not have that peace without his blood, without accepting the consequence of his atonement for us. The peace of Christ in the reign of Christ. And here, someone who understood this doctrine very well, Saint Teresa of Lisieux, that little uh, holy missionary, missionary from her convent walls. And she's the patron saint of missions. Why? Because she says, I made it my business, my mission, to spread the precious blood of Christ on souls. And we see this particularly in that, that famous story where there was that uh, condemned criminal, Pranzini, and she read about his condemnation. But what saddened her, uh, uh, he was a just condemnation. In those good old days, they, they executed uh, uh, wicked criminals. It was a blessing. Uh, nothing uh, more beautiful than to, uh, to know that you're about to die and to be able to receive the sacraments before them. Because all of us are going to die. That's not going to be an exception. Life is not an end in itself. But he refused. He did not want to, to go to confession. did not want to be reconciled with God. She, she says, I, I poured the precious blood upon him. I, I interceded with the precious blood. And she was told that just before he died, he asked for a crucifix to kiss the wounds of our Lord, and then he went to his death. She, was, she understood the power of the precious blood. She says that, My victory is always to run away from evil, but for the conversion of souls, there must be the sight of the precious blood flowing from the, our Lord's wounds. And it is this which will heal all their sins. The precious blood of Jesus I poured on souls. She understood the power, the necessity, the importance, the value of our Lord's precious blood. And this, this uh, aspect, dear friends, is something that we have to understand. When we're talking with anyone, any religion, uh, all their religions can do uh, is tell us something nice. But it cannot lead us to heaven. It cannot save us. And, and you see this today. So many other religions, they are... And you notice, whether it's in Islam, Islam's got a million and one uh, ceremonies. And you know the Jews, both in the Old Testament, and still are like this, talking about particularly the Orthodox Jews, all their million and one for, for us from outsider, we see them as totally ridiculous, silly. I can't push the bell on the Sabbath, or the doorbell, because, you know, I might be... We see them as silly, ridiculous, and all these million and one precepts they have. But why do they do them all? Because they think that by doing them, I'll be cleansed, I'll be holy, and it'll save me. That's what they're all thinking. The, 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 even the, the, the Buddhists, they have all these ceremonies they do and all these meditations they do. Why? Not because they believe in salvation as we do, but because they want to be purified. They want to be cleansed. And we could say it actually does you nothing. Actually, it might make you feel good. 
It might even make you be good in a natural sense that you're not doing something bad. But as far as eternal life, as far as cleansing you from your sins, uh, I'm sorry, uh, a little boy going to communion is doing a trillion more times better than you are with all these pointless ceremonies. Because they are, in the end, pointless. Uh, as good as your religion may appear. Because you have no, you are of no ability to cleanse yourself from any sin. It's only our Lord who can do that. And this is important for us to share with others. And they may be knowledgeable. Don't get me wrong. Uh, people in other religions may be very learned, may be very scholarly, may have understood many things. But if you've missed the heart of what your religion should be about, it's empty. And this is why a little child who knows the catechism knows more than all the great scholars of all the other religions as far as the end is concerned. The end for all of them should be either purification or salvation. Well, that child's understood more. He's gained more. He's more on the, the right boat. And even if I can say, you as a Catholic, even as a sinner, are miles ahead of them. Because all you've got to do is say, sorry Jesus, and go to confession, or even just say sorry, because in a perfect act of contrition, it's sufficient to put you back in the state of grace, objectively, sub objectively speaking. Subjectively, that's another issue. But understand how profoundly advantageous we are even as Catholics in that regard. Thanks to the blood of our Lord, not because we are fantastic. Someone asked the question re recently to me, is being religious make you better than others? No, it just means that you understood, means you understand what you need to do in the purpose and the meaning of your life. That you live up to it is another issue. That's between you and your God. But we hope that we would. That's why we are. We go to communion. We go to confession. We try to live up to that reality. And, and in the end, not only sanctify and purify it, not ourselves by ourselves, but ourselves through the help of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he gives us something very simple in many ways. And you might even think silly. The Eucharist or confession or whatever. But they are practical, real, concrete things by which our Lord comes in contact with us and we come in contact with God, and we are truly purified. We are truly sanctified. And we don't have to, like all the other religions, you notice, as I said, look into them. You, you see all the, the million and one rituals they go to to try to cleanse themselves. And, and you know, Islam today, they, they wash themselves before they go and pray, 